Sorry about that false start there. It, um, it always amazes me um, in the moment how much I realize I don't pay attention to things. Like, oh yeah, we do a scripture reading now. Duh, of course we do. Um, so apologies for that. Um, thank you, Dylan, for reading that section. So Hag- the book of Haggai, and if you'd like to turn there, we're going to spend the majority of our morning there, um, is a book of priorities. And it reminds us what happens when we don't put God first in our lives, and it reminds us how we should put God first in our lives. And there is some context that Ezra provides to, I think, flesh out the book even more, But in general, it's a very simple book. It's not too elaborate, and it gives us a very, um, well, it gives us a very nice two-chapter lesson for this morning. And we're going to read a considerable amount of it, but um, maybe all of it. We'll see how it goes. Um, But a lot of it's also, there are multiple sections where it repeats itself. Because, you know, and God does that. Um, The scripture, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit will often repeat certain claims over and over and over to help us understand it. And that's certainly not different here. Um, And I think that's one of the more important things to understand is how we should be putting God first in our lives. So the book of Haggai takes place after the Babylonian exile, the Babylon captivity of 70 years has ended, the temple has been destroyed, and the people, the remnant, are now coming back to Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. And they are going to attempt to build the temple, um, as you would. But something's going to happen, and they're going to stop building it. And that is where the book of Haggai first begins. And so without further ado... I will read on just a tad. In verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says... The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And that's the passage that really jumped out at me when I was reading Haggai. Consider your ways. And that statement is repeated in more than once, and in different forms. Consider your ways, consider from this day onward. It's all about reflection and looking at what you've been doing with your life. And what these people are doing right now is they're not building God's temple. And the book of Haggai, without the context of Ezra, really makes it seem like they just kind of stopped. And we know there's a little more to it, and we'll get into that. But 
it really makes it feel like, oh, they just, eh, it's not time to do that yet. We'll get to that later. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some prophet will tell us. And ironically, of course, Haggai is doing that. And so very obviously, you can look at this in a sort of black and white way. They're supposed to be building a temple. They're Jews. And they're not doing that. Obviously, that's not right. They need to serve the Lord. And they need to put him first. And what is the comparison that is made? In verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, I'm not an expert on Jewish architecture in the, what, 500 B.C. or whatever this was exactly. But the, the zeroing in on paneled houses, or like some translations I think say roofs, these aren't just tents they're living in. They're not, you know, huts. They have taken the time. They're actually furnishing their homes. They're spending time on them. And, you know, that's they're right. They, they have their homes. They want to live in a nice, comfortable home. There's nothing wrong with that. But they're spending all of that effort instead of focusing on God's temple. And God's temple is sitting there in ruins. And that's, that's the contrast here. They are living their lives. They're focusing on themselves. And the temple that they look at as like the house of God is, lies desolate. And the reason I want to focus in on the almost casual way it's brought up, like, well, you're just, this is just a mismanagement of priorities, is because that will illuminate the overall context of Ezra. So the book of Ezra, in the first six chapters, we get the overall history and context of them going back to Jerusalem, uh, the decree from King Cyrus, the Persian king, um, that they can go back, they're released from captivity, they have all their um, treasures restored that were in the temple previously, um, and they are charged with going back and being able to rebuild the temple. And that's what they begin to do. And as I said previously, the work stops at some point. So let me read very quickly. In Ezra chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 10. Now they have, at this time, come to Jerusalem, and it's been about a year, I think, and... Uh, they are now laying the foundation of the temple. And before this, they, before they even laid a foundation, they've re-established sacrifices. They built an altar, and they are doing sacrifices on a regular basis. And now, Ezra chapter 3, starting at verse 10, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I mean, they basically 
they just put blocks down. It's like the overall plan of the temple. Um, we don't know if too much more was done beyond that, but the, the key here is that it's just the foundation was laid for the rest of the building to be built atop of. And just that singular moment is causing all this pomp and circumstance. They're praising God. And we're going to see here very quickly, they're shouting with great shouts of joy, and the older men are weeping. Verse 12, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. They're having this huge emotional reaction to just the foundation of the temple being laid. And you would think that they would take that, that sort of um, momentum from that and then continue building on. And we do have some interesting details about the older men weeping and there's some um, talk about how it's because the overall plan of the temple uh, may have paled in comparison and they that caused them to weep about what they had lost, but also because they had seen the first temple, there may have been some of them who were just weeping with joy. There's a, a mixture of all sorts of feelings and emotions. And th- this, just the stone slabs on the ground is getting this rise out of them. You know, we have, a, we have something like this today. I mean, we can, we can point to the Jews in Jerusalem they go to the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, uh, part of the Temple of Mount, one of the only surviving areas um, of the original Temple Mount from the Second Temple. And they go there, and they pray daily, and they wail, and they give thanks to God, and there's so much intense emotion about it. So I think I I only bring up that image to give you sort of an image of what we might have been experiencing here. Because that sort of attitude still exists today. And I I I am eventually going to draw a comparison between those two things about what the people eventually refused to do and not that it matters as much today, but what do the Jews refuse to do today? They don't do sacrifices today. They don't do a lot of things today. Now, we know it's because Christ came and fulfilled the law and put a stop to all that and so on. But from their perspectives, they don't believe that. And what do they do? They let things get in their way. They don't rebuild the temple. And uh, I think that's just something interesting to think about. And now here we go in the book of Ezra. We're going to talk about why the work on the temple ceases. And I'm only going to read parts of it because it's an overall longer passage that explains it. But in Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we like you. For we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esaradan, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel 
and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that sounds a lot different than just casually um, putting aside your, your service of God to focus on you know, your own house, doesn't it? These people were threatened... They were in fear for their life at times. And they were dealing with people who eventually would actually write letters and petition to the Persian kings after Cyrus and get the king to decree that all work must be stopped on the temple. They were manipulative and they were hateful. And they caused the people of Jerusalem to fear. These, remember, these are people who came right out of 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And they were finally set free. And they're in a world that, for whatever reason, seems to hate them. Now, from a modern perspective, you don't say, oh, I understand. I, I get it. They, they need to take care of themselves. They need to, you know, take care of their families. Of course they would stop building the temple. But that's the thing. We see a contrast here. These aren't contradictions. God is showing us his own record that in history they were fearful, they were threatened, and they were bullied into stopping. And then in Haggai, we see that they focused on their own things. And I'm trying to explain here that my view is, therefore, Haggai, the prophet, speaking the words of God, is showing them how he views their stoppage of the work. They had, from a worldly perspective, a very legitimate reason for putting it on hold. They probably never meant to quit forever. But God is taking what would appear a legitimate reason and showing it for what it is. And it's no reason at all. Why? Because God would have been with them. If it's God's will for the temple to be rebuilt, it will be rebuilt. And they have no need to fear these other people. They were focused more on themselves, on their own lives rather than the service of God. And that's not a good thing. And that's a hard thing to wrap ourselves around, I think. Because, you know, when, when we get sick, or all sorts of harm befalls us, there's a natural reason to miss church sometimes. I mean, and it's normal, and it's acceptable. But what we have here is a pattern on the side of the Jews where they're letting this fear prevent them from ever serving God and doing the right thing. And I think that's something we're thinking about. When 
some because sometimes we are going to think, oh, okay, I need to just step back. I need to focus on this for a little bit. And we need to consider our own ways and realize maybe that's not always true. Maybe we're not putting God first. And again, I'm, of course, understanding that there are legitimate reasons not to be at church. There's things that can come up. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just overall service. Being a Christian. And let's also think about what these Jews were doing. We've established that they have already set up sacrifices. They're sacrificing at an altar on a regular basis. But they aren't doing what God wants them to do. They're not building the temple. And so all of that work they're doing that they think is good enough is nothing at all. And how many times in our lives can we think, well, I'm I'm at least doing this, but you're ignoring everything the gospel wants for you. We can't save ourselves by, like, with works. Certainly not with minimum works. What we need is a repentant heart and a appeal to God for a clean conscience. And unless we're putting God first, we can't do that. And so, God goes into detail through Haggai about exactly what the consequence has been of them not putting God first. In verse 6 of Haggai, chapter 1, You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. They have an unfulfilling life. But also they have a lack of resources. They are in the midst of a drought. And that drought is caused by God because of their sin. And what does he tell them? He explains all this information about their unfulfilling life, about how they don't have enough, they're just surviving. And verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. How should they consider their ways? By looking at what they should be doing instead of what they have been. Verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be blessed with it and be glorified, says the Lord. The solution to their problems is extremely simple. And God is reminding them what their focus should be. And then, again, he brings it back. What is their current focus? Verse 9 says, You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house which lies desolate, which each of you, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. 
So this people who has not put God first has brought suffering upon themselves. Now we don't necessarily deal with droughts at the hands of God per se because we don't have a prophet explaining that that's what's happening. I mean, I'm not saying that God doesn't work in the world that way. But I'd have a hard time saying, oh, God is definitely causing this drought because California is evil. Um, It could be. But what we do know is that if we do not put God first, we are going to suffer in a variety of ways. And in ways that are very much in common with what the people of Haggai's day did. Because remember what it says. They had a very unfulfilling life. They were just surviving. And what is it like for the atheist or the person who does not put God first? They don't have the hope and the faith and the comfort of God to rely on. Because God has no reason to bless someone who is deliberately disobedient. But, on the other hand, if we return to God and we follow him, he will hear our prayers. And we can have his blessing. And I want to be careful. I don't want to like accidentally run off into some prosperity gospel where I say that, oh, if you're following God, everything's going to work out for you. Because that's not how it works. But he can hear our prayers, and we will have that hope of salvation if we follow him. And that, in my opinion, is a fulfilling life. To put your hope and faith in God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what the Jews at this time were not doing. And God is going to remind them, again, of their pain and what it has accomplished. And also, let us see how quickly it turns around for them. In verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, after hearing all these things, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence to the Lord. So that once they hear this information, they understand it, they immediately show obedience and reverence to God. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. You return to God, and he returns to you. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year, of Darius the king. We should be so thankful that God is patient with us and is quick to bless those who serve him. Because God, of course, is like our Father, and He will, if we ask something of him, he will give it to us. And that's not a blessing that we are able to partake in when we're not putting him first. So the quick turnaround time of Zerubbabel and the people is an encouragement to me. And I would hope it would be an encouragement to you too. And how quickly God 
responds to that. He's never far from us unless we push him away ourselves. And I think that's something worth remembering. Remember what is said when it speaks about the drought. Because of you, these things had happened. And sometimes when we suffer in life, and I don't mean physical suffering like you know Job endured, because we know that Job didn't sin. He, he suffered for other reasons. And we can suffer for other reasons. We can suffer for trials. We can suffer for our own growth. But if we begin stumbling in our service to the Lord, we have others to help us, which is true. There's a whole other lessons about that we can give. But somewhere along the way, you're going to have to realize something you did caused the problem. And that's going to have to be rectified so that you can be united with God in spirit. And so let's check in with uh, that group. About a month later, chapter 2 picks up. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. God is still with them at this time. And the implication here is that they are struggling because they see that in their eyes, this new temple is not turning out to be as glorious as the original. And God is taking the time to encourage them and comfort them through his prophet. And he's going to remind them, starting in verse 5, of the overall promise. How they are part of the bigger picture. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt. None of them came out of Egypt. They all came from Babylon. But he's reminding them that they are part of this grand design. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai really likes to remind us that God is speaking over and over. I feel like I'm saying the Lord of hosts so much, it's becoming a tongue twister. But he's reminding them that the state that they are in, they're trying to do right, and they're trying to do good, and... They're not getting perhaps the results that they think they should because the temple isn't as glorious as it once was. And he's reminding them that this house that you see that may look humble now is going to be far more glorious because something more glorious than even the temple is coming. Jesus says that when he is with his um, uh, disciples, when he's with the apostles, he says something 
greater than the temple is here. And he's talking about himself. And Haggai spends the rest, well, not all of chapter 2, but a lot of chapter 2, looking forward to Christ. Because he's encouraging them to keep going because they are part of the promise that was originally promised to Abraham. We don't know fully why they were discouraged, but we know that they were. And we know that God encouraged them. And I think that any of us could testify to the fact that God encourages us when we are down and we seek him. And I don't mean just, you know, like, I'm sad because the Dodgers lost or something. I mean, like, actual spiritual anxiety and concern and real meaningful stuff. And what we see here is a pattern of how God treats those who serve him. He's constantly our encourager, our cheerleader, if you will. And as long as we keep going, he's going to have our back. And certainly we know that um, Jesus calls himself um, that he will um, intercede for us, that he will defend us, and then he washes away our sins. And the Jews of Haggai's time, though they don't fully understand that these are maybe messianic prophecies that are coming about, they will understand the need for it. In verse 10, and this is fast-forwarding another two more months, on the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Well, now we're not seeing the same amount of encouragement, are we? What we're seeing here is additional teaching. And God's going to remind them, through Haggai, of their current state. Then Haggai said, in verse 14, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now that might have been hard to hear two months later. There's no indication that they stopped building the temple again. They were still working on it. Um, I think I looked up in Encyclopedia the other day that it took them about four years to complete the temple, all told. Um, you know, buildings, it, it takes a long time even to make buildings today. So they weren't doing anything wrong, but then it says they're unclean. Why are they unclean? Like, where did this come from? And what is the purpose of this line of questioning? And again, we have to look back at Ezra. And I think that it gives us more context. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And this is going to be about the beginning of the uh, sacrifices, of the altars. Then Jeshua the son of Jehozadak and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. Now, hold on. I want to stop right there really quick. They were setting up this altar not just to worship God, although obviously that played a part in it, but they did it because they were terrified of all the people of the land. They wanted... They were motivated by the world. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, perhaps because they were hoping for a blessing and protection. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated. And from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So, again, I've, I, and I did bring this up earlier on, but before they even laid the foundation, they started uh, doing sacrifices. Now, was that a huge problem? I, I'm not really here to answer that question. Um, we do know that there were certain rules and regulations around sacrifice and what you're supposed to do. And it says that while they were doing everything, they were doing it as written in the Law of Moses, um, according to the ordinances and so on. But even then, they were neglecting the temple, weren't they? Before they even laid the foundation and got scared out of building the temple, they chose to do something else first while the house of God sat desolate. And I think that's a clue as to why all their work is unclean. Because they were doing it for themselves and not for God. So it seems to me that God is telling them that the work up to that point had been worthless to him. I mean, they, but the Jews were trying to serve God. And then they did lay a foundation for the temple, and they built it, and they did build the altar and restored sacrifices. But it was not enough because they had abandoned God's overall plan for them. That's the way I interpret that. And so, why wasn't it enough? Because it's not what God wanted. Their sacrifices meant nothing while they were yet disobedient. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel says. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Sacrifice existed for a reason, and it was for sin offerings and free will offerings and all these things. But if their heart wasn't in the right place, if they weren't putting God first, none of it matters. And God, again, reminds them of the drought and their suffering because of their neglect for the Lord. Verse 15, But now do consider from this day onward, calling them to remind them again, to remember, to consider their ways. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, before you even began to build it, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, they would be only ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider 
Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. And what he's saying here is really, it's a, there's a double imagery here. Because there was a very real drought, and they were low on resources, and God is with them now because they have begun to listen to him, and they're building his temple. But they, you know, it takes a while to harvest things. And they may have been very concerned about that. And God is reminding them, is there still seed in the barn? Then it's not too late. And how can we also take that? If there's still a seed of faith in our heart, then it's not too late for us to turn around as well. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. There is still time to bear fruit. And that's the case for all of us. If we consider our ways, uh, and no matter what our state is, we can consider our ways and think, you know what? Hey, I actually think we're actually doing pretty good. Let's keep doing it. Let's encourage ourselves. Let's encourage each other. Or we should consider our ways and think, oh, I'm missing the mark here. What do I need to do to correct? You know, they were fortunate because they had Haggai there just telling them, hey, you need to do this. We don't have that, but at the same time we do, because we have the entire Word of God. And God encourages them again. Verse 20, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. This is the same imagery we heard before. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Reminding them once again where the future is going. Jesus is coming. And you know what? We live in a blessed time where we have seen the events where Jesus came. And all of that, all the beautiful things that came from it. And they were looking forward and we are looking back. And when each of us consider our ways, you can be more likely to say, maybe we should consider our foundation from which our faith is built. Because whatever we are doing doesn't matter. Once again, I know I'm being repetitive, unless we put God first, unless we put Christ first. In Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And these events took place at the second temple, where he was tried, and where he was eventually sentenced to death, and he was sent to Pilate, and he was crucified, and he entered through a place not made with hands. 
the glory of the second temple truly did become more glorious than the first because of the events that took place around it. And still, we have something even greater. Because as I alluded to before, Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. So again, we should consider our ways as we serve God. We should do it regularly and examine ourselves, just as we do for partaking the Lord's Supper. And we should consider our foundation, what our faith is built on. Because the Jews forgot that. They built the foundation for the temple, and they had all that emotion about it, and yet they quickly forgot it when the cares of the world took it from them. And they abandoned God's temple. And if they remembered that the, that the foundation had already been laid and that they could use it to build off of, maybe things would have been different for them. And Christ is our foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, 10-11. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And in verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Something greater than the temple is here. And we are temples of God. Our bodies are temples. And we are in service to God to Christ, who is that foundation. And we need to build our faith on that foundation and not leave it behind and constantly examine our paths and consider our ways to make sure that we are staying on top of it. I would now like to offer the invitation at this time if anyone who is not a Christian and wishes to come forward and be baptized and devote their life to Christ and service of Him, then the time is ready for you to come forward and do so. And if you are a Christian and you are struggling in some way, if you are concerned about your putting God first and you need the prayers of the congregation, you need help and guidance with that, that's also a time for this. You can come forward and we can assist you, whatever your need may be. Let us come forward as we stand and sing.